I, I think it's incredible the way these services come together on Sunday morning and the messages kind of harmonize with each other. But you know what? We shouldn't think that's incredible, should we? We shouldn't be so amazed that the worship songs meld with the catechism. The catechism, as you're going to see, uh, works very well with the lesson today. But I think if the church is focused on the Word of God, if we have a high view of the Word of God, the Word of God harmonizes with itself. It doesn't contradict itself. So when the worship is inhabited by the Word of God, when the catechism is inhabited by the Word of God, when the sermon is inhabited by the Word of God, they're going to make sense. Amen? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's easy to find. It's right after 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. I originally thought we would do 1 through 11, but you know how that goes. So we're going to do 1 through 7. Let me read this passage, and then we'll, we'll take a closer look at it, and we'll kind of set the scene this morning for uh, 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we, shall, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope is for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. It's a powerful message, the Word of God, brothers and sisters. So we, we begin a new series in 2 Corinthians today. I'm calling it, I Am Content. That quote comes directly from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, where Paul says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with, listen to this, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I choose this, this book and this title to draw a contrast between Jonah, who didn't seem to be content no matter what happened. Jonah just wasn't happy at all, except when he got rescued, and, and, but that was short-lived. So I, I want to draw a contrast between Jonah and his circumstances and Paul, who was content in all circumstances. He says that much in Philippians. Jonah missed God's blessings because he wasn't happy with what was going on. Paul lived in peace and enjoyed an abundance of blessings, even though it seems as though Paul's life was a lot rougher than Jonah's. So we ended the book of Jonah with a question that we should all ask ourselves when uh, the, the times around us start getting to us. And the question was, if I really believe God is sovereign, why am I so upset? Jonah had a harsh lesson to learn in the sovereignty of God. 
God not only knew exactly where Jonah was when he tried to run, but God used the weather. He used other people. He used non-faithful people. He used the animals. He used everything to teach Jonah the true meaning of sovereignty. At the end of the book, even though Jonah has learned his lesson on sovereignty, he's upset. In 2 Corinthians, we're going to walk with Paul as he handles a very difficult task with, with a church that he loves and winds up not upset, but content and urging godly people to take comfort in God's sovereignty. So that's the overall message of 2 Corinthians. We'll get a bit more specific in just a moment. Because if you look at the first seven verses of 2 Corinthians, I'll show you something amazing here. This is going to seem really simplistic, but I've got to tell you something. It works. God communicates with his people the same way we learn to communicate when we stand up here. Have you ever heard of the three tells? Tell them what you're going to say, tell them what you're saying, and then tell them what you said. God works the same way. You can see this in his letters. You can see this in each of the books in the Bible. There's a beginning of the book uh, where God kind of sets his premise. There's the end of the book where he resolves the premise and repeats it. So if you take a look at the first seven verses in 2 Corinthians, you'll see the word comfort ten times. Ten times in actually five verses. It's once in verse 3, four times in verse 4, four times in one verse, once in 5, three times in verse 6, and then one more time in verse 7. Now, if you flip to the, do this, flip to the back of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. There in chapter 13, verse 11, what word do you see? Comfort, comfort. Paul bookends his letter with the admonishment to comfort and to be comforted. Now, again, I said that sounds a little simplistic, doesn't it? But it works. 2 Corinthians is about Paul telling the Corinthian church to comfort and be comforted. Now, before we get to our passage today, I want to take a look at Corinth. You can turn back to the first chapter of, of 2 Corinthians. See why it's so prominent in Paul's writings? see why they were so vital to him, and maybe, maybe get a peek at why the church there seemed to struggle so much. First Corinthians was filled with a lot of corrective action. Second Corinthians, there's even a little bit more. Corinth was one of those bustling trade centers that we see so much about, Ephesus, and, and you know, another one of those crossroads where the world seemed to come to their doorstep. It was situated on a narrow three-mile-wide isthmus between the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. There was a huge bay on the other end of it. That bay kind of emptied out into the Mediterranean Sea. And Corinth was strategic, and the reason it was strategic was because ships wanted to avoid going down the south end of Greece. The weather was treacherous there, and the waters were almost innavigable most of the, the, the time of the year. So they would go to Corinth where teams of horses and men would drag the ships literally across that three-mile-wide isthmus. Uh, And, you know, they had a series of logs and levers and that sort of thing to make it a little bit easier. But it was much safer for the ships to go to Corinth and be dragged across the land and then put in that bay where they would sail safely off to the mainland of Italy and then carry their goods the rest of the way. That's the route that Paul took the first time 
he went on his missionary trip. So that safe passage made Corinth a very, very busy city. It also made Corinth a very, very wealthy town. People from all over the world came there. It had been reestablished by the Romans after it was destroyed a hundred years before uh, Christ came. They, they rebuilt the city. They made it very Roman in nature. And it was populated by slaves and slave owners and basically second-tier uh, citizens, but it became very rich and wealthy. So all these people were kind of on the rise. It was filled with temples to pagan gods, there were worshipers of all types in Corinth, not to mention the town was heavily populated with, with those new rich people that had just come into a lot of money, maybe one generation or so, and they would look down on the people who weren't rich. So displays of ostentatious wealth, of, of luxury, were the order of the day. And with its Roman architecture, here are a few pictures that Kelly and I took when we were there in 2010. It was posh. It was luxurious. It was one of the places to live. Here's what the main street looks like today. Very wide, filled with stores and townhouses and that sort of thing. Uh, there was a huge synagogue right in the middle of the city. A huge Jewish population lived there. And the, the entire city was dominated by a giant hill called the Acro-Corinth, the high point of Corinth. And on the top of that hill was the world's largest temple to the goddess of carnal love, Aphrodite. There was a temple right next to it, to Apollo, which was a temple to homosexual love. And those temples were filled with courtesans who would come down into the city during the evening and mingle with the population, trying to proselyze the population into worshiping Aphrodite and Apollo. So that's kind of the characteristic of the town. I mean, the, the most important part of the town the most prominent part of town was de dedicated to carnal and physical love. Corinth had become a city obsessed with wealth and social status. It was full of people focused on the material things of life, material splendor, social climbers, and political power brokers were all over the place. And the new church, as it came into Corinth, as Paul came through and proselytized those people, shared the gospel, began establishing a church, the new church would have been filled with those types of people who would probably have seen this new popular church as a means of gaining popularity, as a means of networking with other people in the city. And at the very least, they would have brought with them into the church that whole idea of social ranking and material accumulation and pagan worship and all that. So if, if you understand that, now 1 Corinthians starts making a little bit more sense and, and 2 Corinthians has a piggybacks upon it. Paul addresses a lot of those issues in 1 Corinthians and where he accuses them of, being, of thinking that they're mature but actually being a bunch of babies. He calls them babies. 1 Corinthians is a harsh corrective to the church there and as we're going to see, the letter was received we can't really say it was received well, but it was received, and they began working on a lot of the things that Paul admonished them to do, uh, but there were still some lingering feelings about that. Now, Paul had intended to visit them between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but things didn't work out that way. He was in a, unable to do it, and that created some tension. That created some hard feelings amongst the people in the church. So when we get to 2 Corinthians, there are some bruised feelings, not 
a lot of damage, but some bruised feelings, perhaps a little bit of lingering anger over the first letter, over the missed visit. Uh, not only that, but there some teachers have risen up in the church and are now challenging Paul's apostolic calling. That's why we have this second letter to the Corinthians. There's no indication that the accusations are, are really gaining any traction in the church, but Paul's concerned about it, he's heard about it, and he's going to address those accusations just a, a little bit later in the letter, in the first two, three chapters or so. We need to keep all that background in mind as we walk through this epistle, and let's look at our passage today. Let me start with this proposition for you. This is a tough one. The more we suffer, the more God comforts us. The more we suffer, the more God comforts us. Now, I know where you're going with this. Just stick with me for a while, okay? So, there, there's a truth revealed in this passage this morning. When we suffer, God will console us. God will comfort us. These seven verses can be broken down into three attributes of God's consolation and comfort. Here they are. Verses 1 and 2 are the person of God's comfort. Verses 3 through 5 are the purpose of God's comfort. And verses 6 and 7 are the pattern of God's comfort. Notice that? We've got the P's back there again. So let's take a look at our first attribute, the person of God's comfort. If, if you read Paul's greeting, in particular Paul, now all the greetings are important, but Paul loads his greetings up with a lot of meaning. So if you read them too quickly, you're going to miss this. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 and see how they speak of the person of God's comfort. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, and all the saints who are in the, the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most ancient letters begin with a similar salutation uh, that includes the name of the sender, uh, his position or his status, why he's writing, uh, and the recipients, and, and some sort of wish for the the goodness of the recipient. Now, Paul follows contemporary form here, but there are a few differences. Paul wants his readers to understand who he is. Now, he doesn't do this in an arrogant or self-centered way, but in an effort to convey the authority with which this letter is written. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And catch this, he's not an apostle by his own declaration. He's ordained by the will of God. Paul has been chosen by God and writes as God's representative. So, right away we know this is no ordinary letter, and Paul is no ordinary writer. Later on, the church would find out that Paul's writings were actually inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes under this inspiration. However, neither are Paul's recipients unworthy either. Neither are Paul's recipients ordinary either. They are a covenant community. They're a covenant community formed by God who just happens to be located in Corinth. They're part of a larger covenant community, and so they're located in Corinth. They're located in a region around Corinth. That's why he mentions Achaia. Uh, they have been chosen by God and set apart as well. So right away we know this is a very unique letter, a red letter authored by God, delivered through his representatives to 
his chosen people. And Paul doesn't merely wish them well, nor does he wish upon them blessings to come. What he does is he reminds them of the blessings that they already have, the things that they've already received. And what they've received is grace and peace. He also reminds them who they have received these blessings from. It's from God and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul's setting a very deliberate stage here. Anyone taking enough time to do anything more than skim over Paul's greeting will see the richness in these two verses and everything that Paul is laying as a foundation for what he's about to say. It's an authoritative letter written by a man who's been equipped and proclaimed to represent God, sending a letter to a God-ordained community themselves who are called to be equipped and called to be messengers of the living God. So Paul's moving along those lines. Paul wants him to understand, first and foremost, that they already have grace and peace. Now, this is important to keep in mind. They may not be walking in grace and peace right then. They may not have appropriated it for their lives, but God has given it to them in his son, Jesus Christ. You and I, as believers, have the same promise. God has given us, already given us, grace and peace. We just have to learn how to walk in those blessings. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Paul very purposefully makes the last words of his greetings Jesus Christ. He wants to call their attention to the fact that it's only in him that any of these blessings are possible. Only in him that they can even receive a letter from God's apostle. Only in him that they can read it. Only in him that they can understand it. It's only in him that this enabling comes, that this calling comes, that these blessings of grace and peace come. They all come in and through Jesus Christ. Now, knowing that there's some tension between Paul and the church at Corinth, that salutation would come to them as a comfort. You know, it would be similar to you and I having a, a misunderstanding. I don't want to call it an argument, but having a misunderstanding with somebody and kind of parting with maybe some harsh words and then running into them in the middle of town. And you know how awkward that moment is. And you're kind of like, uh-oh, <laughs> What am I going to say? What am I going to do? And, and they look at you and put this big smile on their face and say, well, Lord bless you. It's nice to see you. Do you, really, you. You know, when that happens, when it happens in that fashion, how it kind of disarms all of your apprehension, how it makes you feel blessed. Well, the Corinthians had to feel the same way. Paul opens his letter with blessing. I mean, there have been some bad words between them. They're expecting, okay, what's wrong, what's wrong with you people? And he says, may the Lord bless you. Let me remind you that we're all part of God's family. So Paul knows that a soft answer will turn away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. That's right out of Proverbs chapter 15. Paul begins his letter with blessings and an acknowledgement that they're all saved by the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the person of comfort of God. It is in Jesus that this great peace and grace flow from, from him into them. And now it flows through Paul's pen to the people at the church of Corinth. And even here, in these first few lines of Paul's letter, you can see Paul trying to emulate Christ in everything that he does. 
So verse 3 to 5 give us our next attribute of God's comfort. It's his purpose, the purpose of God's comfort. These verses say, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Paul blesses God for who he is, the Father of Christ, who's our Lord, and hearkens back to his first letter to the Corinthian church, where he tells them, I mean, he says, Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. In the first Corinthians, uh, the first letter, he tells them what it means to have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I think this is kind of important because I'm not sure that we always take time to consider our words when we say, praise Jesus, he's our Lord and Savior. So Paul wants them to think about this, to recall the teaching. In 1 Corinthians 8, verses 5 and 6, he told them this. For although there may, may be so-called God in, gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul wants the Corinthians to remember that they owe everything to Jesus Christ and none other. Their very existence depends totally upon Christ. God is also the originator of, of what? Of mercies. God is the originator of all comfort. Now, the Greek word for mercies here has a connotation of compassion, and the Greek word for comfort also denotes consolation. So, God is the father of compassion, of consolation, of mercies, and of comfort. Well, we might have known that. So what is the purpose of the comfort? Paul gets right to the point in verse 4. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now that can be a complicated sentence, but listen to this. The purpose of God's comfort is to comfort us, his children. Now, at first, that may seem like a no-brainer, but let's look a little closer at it. The insinuation is that God's mercy and comfort is for those that belong to him and call him Lord, and that alone should be an encouragement for those of us who, who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, because we all have, at times, we grieve. Uh, there's times when we hurt. There are times when we've lost someone who's dear to us. We all experience that. There are times when we have disappointments, times when our expectations are just shattered. There are times when we stumble. And when all of those times happen, we need some comforting. Now, most of us, when we need comforting, turn to our friends, turn to our family, those who are close to us. And while that can make us feel great, while they can be a real blessing to us by offering us some sympathy and some comfort, we should realize that God is the source of all comfort. God is the source of the comfort that we really need in those times when we need to feel that compassion. It comes from Him. And the way to lay hold of that is to turn to God, not to other people, not to the people around us, but to turn first to God, to pour our hearts out to Him, to depend on Him, to trust Him, to get us through this hard time that we're going through. Well, that's a great idea, John, but how do I do that? How do I, how do I turn to God? In order to trust Him, 
Listen carefully. In order to trust him, we have to know him. In order to know him, we have to listen. In order to know him, we have to work at our relationship with him. Now, that's anathema to a lot of the teaching you hear come out of the church universal today. But in order to know him, we have to work at our relationship with him just as we would any other relationship we have. Can you imagine meeting the person that you think you want to marry and say, well, I don't really want to spend any time with you. I just want to be with you. I just want, I just want to be your spouse. I don't want to have to work at it. I just want to be it. Because, because that's a lot, that, that dominates a lot of the teaching that we hear today. I, I firmly believe that there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians that put little or no effort into knowing God. They seem to think, they seem to believe that knowledge of him is going to come to them without spending time with him. It's some kind of osmosis thing. Well, I read a book about him. Well, he wrote a book about him. Have you read that book? They think they don't have to invest any time or effort in him. All they have to do is receive. All they have to do is be loved. All they have to do is be holy. And there's just enough truth to that to, to believe that, that knowledge of him will come without spending any time. There's just a kernel of truth to that because God does love us, amen? We read his word. How, how do we get to know him? You know, we, we, we don't have this idea that we don't have to invest any time in him is just counter-cultural, counter-cultural to the culture of the Bible. It's anti-scriptural. Well, you know, we need to know his word. We need to read his word. Yes, we need to read his word. And somebody will go, well, his word's written on our hearts. You know what? It may be. You've got to read it. It's written on the heart. I don't have to read it. It's written on my heart. What's it say? I don't know. So we, we have to read it. We, we pray. We, we read God's word. We pray so that we can commune with him, so that we can actually have some sort of communication with him. We worship and we praise him because he says we should do that. Now, I know a lot of people think that this is legalism. They'll tell you that God accepts you just the way you are. And there's another kernel of truth in that. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything at all. And again, there's enough truth in that that makes it easy to accept that. God does love you. God does accept you just the way you are. You don't have to clean up your life to get into God's presence. You don't have to be good. You don't have to get better to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He, God, God will take you and love you just as you come to him at the moment you come to him. But hear this. Hear this. If you're going to have a relationship with him, his gracious acceptance of you is just the beginning of the relationship. Some participation is required. God will take you just as you are, but he will never, ever leave you there. He intends to grow you and transform you and draw you closer to him. He will work in you. He will change you. But you have to do your part. The book of Hebrews tells us this. In Hebrews 12, 12 through 14, the author says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive strive for peace with everyone 
and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. We are to strive for peace and holiness. That's our part. We reach out for him, and he responds with abundant blessings. But you know what? That reaching can be difficult. We may stumble in our efforts to strive for him from time to time. And we need, in those times, we need some comfort and some compassion. If we do what he tells us, then God will do what he says he will do. The Father of all mercies and comfort will comfort us when we need it. Now, God does this because he loves us, it's true. But don't forget that everything that God does is to bring glory and honor to himself. So although he loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us so that we could be with him, he comforts us with godly comfort so that so that that comfort will flow through us and comfort others. Isn't that what Paul says? Look at this in verse 4. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He comforts us so that we can comfort others. Not so that we can feel better about ourselves, not so that we can be relieved about that situation, but so that we can comfort others. We need to understand this. Otherwise, it will be easy to misunderstand some of the things that rise up in our lives. God comforts us because he loves us, but the primary reason he does this is so that we can comfort others. And this works just like grace does. We're supposed to be vessels of grace. God pours his grace into us. He saves us by grace. We're supposed to dispense that grace as freely as we have received it. It's the same thing with comfort. God will pour comfort into you so that you can pour comfort into other people. Now, the reason God does it this way is so that those around you can see Christ in you. You become a walking, talking testimony and witness to Jesus Christ here on earth. So people can see you transforming, can see you changing, being molded into his image. And as that continues in your life, God gets the glory for the transformation that occurs in you. This is why we're to pour out comfort. Let that sink in for a moment. Let's consider that for a second. God comforts you, gives you compassion, so that you will comfort others and give them compassion. Consider that, because it's about to get tougher. Look at the next verse, verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now, I like the Holman Christian Bible on this verse. It says, for as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us. I just need you to think about that phrase for a second. As the sufferings of Christ overflow to us. This is, this is not the come to Jesus and everybody will be your friend gospel. Okay? As the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so through Christ our comfort also overflows. Jesus Christ endured unbelievable suffering. 
His body was tortured. He was abandoned by everyone close to him. He was humiliated, spat upon. Ultimately, he died while they laughed at him. And if you're a believer, you are one with him. There's no suffering that you and I can go through that he's not familiar with. There's actually no suffering that you and I can go through that, wasn't, that was greater than his. His was far greater than ours. We share in his sufferings. And as such, we share in his comfort as well. Now, this goes a little bit deeper than it looks. The more he suffered, the more he was comforted. That's kind of a scary message, but listen carefully. How was Jesus comforted in the middle of his suffering? I mean, did God come down and hold him close and say, don't worry, everything's going to be okay? Here's what happened. Jesus was comforted because he was doing the will of the Father. Jesus was comforted because he knew his home was not here. It was in heaven. Jesus was comforted in knowing that his earthly suffering was only temporary, that it was not eternal. Jesus was comforted in knowing that God was in control. He was comforted that God has an immutable plan. He was comforted in knowing that God was absolutely sovereign over everything that was happening to him, and nothing was happening to him that was outside of God's authority. And he was comforted in knowing that he was one with the Father. Now, those are pretty lofty truths. But do you see this? See, we, we, we will never suffer as much as Christ did, but if and when we do suffer, we can have the same comfort that Jesus had because we're one with him. That makes us one with everything that comforts him. Now, we may be looking for comfort in another area, but where we're going to find our comfort is in the attributes and the truth of who God is because we're one with his son and his son is one with him. Now, this is not a call for us to suffer, but it is an admonition to learn when we suffer to learn where our comfort is when we need it, to learn where our faith lies, to learn something about ourselves and something about God so that we can comfort others when they suffer. We can comfort them with the love of Christ. The same love that we receive, the purpose of God's comfort for us is so that we can comfort others. Let's look at the pattern of God's comfort, our third attribute. Look how Paul portrays this in verses 6 and 7. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now, Paul makes an allusion here to the accusations that are levied against him. We don't know the full nature of them yet, but we, we know that they have to do with his suffering and how it shows that he's not really qualified to be an apostle. 
Paul's trials and sufferings were legendary by this point. Most people in the church knew what Paul was going through. And now there are some people saying that there's something wrong. Because Paul's suffering, there's something wrong. After all, good and godly people don't suffer. Good and godly people don't have these problems in life, do they? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, now some, some people are not looking at Scripture. You have to look no further than the book of Job. Where, you know, the big question that hangs over Job is can a righteous man suffer? And the answer is a great big fat yes. Because Job is righteous at the beginning of the book and righteous at the end of the book. But i got to tell you something. Job is only a shadow of what's to come because the, the primary example of a righteous man's suffering is who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not only righteous, he was perfect and holy. And he suffered more than anyone ever suffered, particularly because he was perfect and holy. He took the sin of the world on his shoulders. So righteous men can suffer. Paul not only refutes those accusations by saying that God made him an apostle in verse 1. He didn't proclaim his own apostleship. He goes a bit further and claims that his suffering actually occurred so that he could comfort the Corinthians. Think about that one for a moment. Paul went through incredible trials and sufferings just to get to Corinth to preach the gospel. Had not Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel, the Corinthians might never have heard the gospel. Yet Paul found comfort, the comfort of God in his suffering, and now wants to pass it along to them. He wants to give them the assurance of their place in eternity so that they can comfort others as they suffer for the gospel the same way that Paul did. All of Paul's suffering came because he was so committed to what he was called to do, the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. That's worthy of some thought. Nothing deterred him. Why not? Because Paul knew who his God was. He knew what his calling was. Paul dedicated all he had and all he was to to, uh, enduring whatever he had to endure so that he could share the gospel. For his suffering, he received comfort. And he shares the comfort uh, with the Corinthians, and now he expects them to begin sharing it with other people so they can bring comfort to others. Paul developed endurance through his trials and his suffering. He wants the Corinthians to experience that endurance as well. In turn, they'll receive comfort in abundance. Paul knows there's some tension. He's well aware of it. But he also knows that these Corinthians are his brothers and sisters in the Lord. He gets it. So he wants, to, he wants to give them some encouragement. He doesn't want to just tell them be comforted. He wants to give them a foundation for their comfort. In verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul's confident in their faith, in their trust in the Lord, longs to see them reap the blessings of comfort and trust that God will bring that comfort to them when suffering arrives at their doorstep. So, let's do a quick review here. We've seen the person of God's comfort in Jesus Christ. If you know him as your Lord and Savior, he will comfort you. That's what the Word says. But you have to hold up your end of the relationship. You have to do that by becoming a a student of the Word. You have to do that by becoming a prayer warrior and 
uh, becoming a doer of the Word, not just a hearer of the Word, but a doer of the Word. We're going to have a lot of opportunities to do that this summer. We looked at the purpose of God's comfort. His comfort will come out of affliction so that we can comfort others who are afflicted. Now, that may be the most valuable lesson we have of the morning because it tells us that the trials we endure, listen, it tells us that the trials we endure, the things that we go through that are hard, have meaning and purpose. There's a reason for this to happen. It may not be pleasant. There's certainly not anything that we want to go through again, but they have meaning and purpose. If you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you come upon these hard times, there's nothing but futility. There's nothing but emptiness. There's no reason for the pain. Everybody's going to suffer. Everybody's going to lose something. Everybody's going to be disappointed at some point. Those who have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior can find comfort in that. Those who don't can't find anything. They've got to turn to their friends. They've got to turn to their addictions. They've got to turn to the world. And you know how empty that can be. Without Christ in their lives, when suffering comes, there's no way to handle it. Pain with no reason. Those who believe in him have the promise and blessing of a home for eternity and the promise and blessing that God will comfort us. So in that, we see the pattern of God's comfort. Affliction arises, we receive comfort, and when affliction comes to those around us, we pour out that comfort to them. The pattern repeats itself in and through them, and that's how the gospel moves throughout the culture. One last real-time lesson we can learn from our passage. And this is going to take some thought. But Paul's story kind of bears this lesson out. I think it's very profound. Uh, You'll see what I'm talking about as we go through 2 Corinthians. And as you get familiar with Paul's story, you'll see that Paul is one suffering guy. I mean, he's been through a lot. And it's not over yet for Paul, and he kind of knows it. Why, Why would Paul keep putting himself in that situation. I mean, we see Paul going through some... I mean, they stoned him one time, and the disciples are standing around him, and they think Paul's dead. He must have looked dead after stoning. And Paul miraculously rises up and starts walking away from them. They go, where are you going? He goes, I'm going back to preach the gospel. That's what God sent me to do. I mean, he gets up and goes back and does exactly the thing that they stoned him for. Why would he keep doing this? over and over again, where when he knew that he would suffer because Paul had laid hold of a scriptural proof, a truth that we see in in the scriptures. So the more we suffer, the more God comforts us, the more God sheds his compassion on us, the more we feel that supernatural presence and that supernatural comfort. Listen to me carefully. Because we don't want to miss this. Paul didn't go looking for suffering. That, that would be a mistake. That would be suffering for suffering's sake. But Paul was willing to do whatever he had to do to share the love of Christ, to share the gospel. And he shared it with anyone who would listen to him. To top it off, and here's God's irony, God sent Paul a very, very Jewish Jew to preach to the Gentiles. He sends Peter, the redneck fisherman from the outlying territory, to the Jews, the sophisticated, educated, uh, 
arrogant Jews, and he sends Paul, the guy who you would think would be the one to go to the Jews, he sends Paul to the Gentiles. There's a life lesson in that little tidbit. Everything in Paul's background taught him that the Gentiles were scum, that they were unworthy of God. In order to become close to God in Paul's time, everybody thought you had to become Jewish. You couldn't have a relationship with God if you were a Gentile. God sends Paul to bring those people the good news of Jesus Christ. That means the whole world. There were two groups of people as far as the Jews were concerned. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. God sends Paul out into the whole world filled with Muslims and gay people and people who don't think like he did politically and and people who were opposed to everything he said. And he says, I want you to go them to them and share comfort and compassion. It's an incredible calling. And the same world returned Paul's zeal. I mean, everybody in the world went, gee, we didn't know that. That's fantastic good news. We're thinking like you do now, right? I mean, that's what we expect when we share the gospel sometimes, that people are just going to go, oh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yes, I want some of that. But what happened to Paul? The world turns Paul's zeal, returns Paul's zeal with incredible punishment. They stoned him. They kicked him out of town. They hit him with a lash. They hit him with a rod. And Paul never stopped sharing The older Paul gets, you can trace this in his writings, the more he grew in his comfort. If you follow his writings, you'll hear an increasing peace and a growing willingness to put aside the cares and the pain of the world and set his eyes on Jesus Christ. Because Christ was not only the source of his salvation, it was the source of his comfort and his compassion. Paul learned that his suffering was only temporary. His joy and his comfort were going to be eternal. We have the same promise. Our suffering, no matter how monumental it may seem, will never, listen, our suffering will never outpace the grace and the love and the comfort and the compassion of God. Things we go through will never be greater than his love for us. The comfort of God, when we run into those moments, God will give us his comfort, and then we will turn around and share it with others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Your presence is a comfort. Your presence is a joy. Father, we pray that we might lay hold of that, that that would be imprinted on our hearts. Father, that we can not just embrace it, Father, but walk in it, Lord. Give us the strength, give us the determination, Lord, by the presence and power of your Spirit to walk in your comfort and your compassion. And then, Father, give us the discernment and wisdom, wisdom not to withhold that, but to let it flow from us into those around us. Lord, that you might be glorified in our walk in our testimony. In Jesus' name we pray.